0: For many Americans, forensic science is framed for them by TV shows like Dexter or CSI or Bones, shows which focus on the work of genius forensic scientists as they sift through evidence in order to give investigators tools to find a criminal. But along with the physical fingerprints and bloodstains, there's also a lot of statistical data that could be sifted through. The intersection of forensics and statistics is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories, and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are our regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Former and founding chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Alicia Karakiri. She's a professor of statistics at Iowa State University and the director of the Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence, or CSafe. Alicia, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about CSafe's mission? Sure.
1: Uh, so CSafe has a three-fold mission. Uh, num- the our research mission is to uh, build up, develop the probabilistic foundation of pattern evidence and digital evidence. And we can talk about that, what that means afterwards. Uh, we are also uh, expected to train forensic scientists and law professionals uh, in, you know, trying to, to transmit the importance of statistics, quantitation, etc., cetera,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, outreach. So we, we uh, reach out to the forensics community and try to work with them um, in helping uh, them uh, fill the gaps in 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 research in the evaluation of evidence.
3: How how have you been received? I, I you know I, one of the, the questions when I was was listening to some of the one of the talks that you had given. You, you know, you said as a goal that you wanted to shatter the notion that I know a match when I see one, mm. and so I, I, I would think that what you're doing may run completely in the face of of people that are specialists and have been practicing for years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a quick answer there. <laughs> this will be a short show.
1: <laughs> Let us just say that we um, we were not received very fondly to begin with, and. You know, one can understand that, right? So here you you have professionals that have been practicing their craft for many, many years, and then there's us coming out of nowhere saying this is not the way you should do things, this is the way you should do things. And so there was resistance, uh, but on the other hand, I think that, um, you know, the poor forensic practitioners, I think they find themselves between a rock and a hard place Mm. because on the one hand, there's us saying you need to change the way you're doing things. And then there's also pressure from jurors and lawyers and, you know, the public that is starting to ask questions. OK, so you say this matches. What's the probability mm-hmm. of that match? And so I think, um, well, not not I think, I know uh, the conversation has started changing and uh, we have... Uh, Try to emphasize, put emphasis on the on the message that uh, we don't want. We are not telling people they're doing everything wrong. We're just trying to develop tools that they can use to improve the way they work. Mm -hmm.
4: Alicia, what was the what was sort of the tipping point when these police departments started sending you bullets? And (laughs) so, so what happened to 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 instigate that?
1: Well, uh, my colleague, Heike Hoffman, mm. who's really the, the intellectual driver of this work in bullets, uh, and I have been hitting the meetings in, for firearms examiners. Mm-hmm. And at some point, we presented some work that said, you know, we have this classifier. Uh, we can tell with all these uh, classical sets of bullets that have been out there, We make no mistakes in the classification of pairs of bullets that were fired from the same gun or from different guns and uh, send us some bullets. And so we sort of issued a challenge. And we started getting uh, sets of bullets from all over. They wouldn't tell us ground truth. So they would send us this sort of question bullets and ask us to classify them. And we've been doing really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, getting back to this department and saying, this is what we think is going on with these bullets. This came from this gun, this came from that gun. And so far, there's been no mistakes.
3: So have these predictive models that you have for identifying bullets been been used in courts? Mm
1: -hmm. No, no. So this this is a very long process, right? So first of all, you have to have... um, well, like everything else, right? So you have to have a lot of testing, a lot of validation, and we're working a lot with machine learning type of algorithms, learning algorithms. And those are very, very, very dependent on the data you have to train those algorithms. And so um, we are in the baby steps still. Uh mm-hmm. and the technology we're using to take measurements, we're using uh, three-dimensional uh, high-resolution microscopy to look at the, at the surface topology of these bullets, uh, very high precision, fractions of microns. Um, these instruments are not available in your normal crime lab. Uh-huh.
2: Oh, right.
1: And so they, you know, we have... A plan now to see whether we can work with labs, put some of these instruments in the labs and really start pilot testing these technologies in uh, in real uh, in real cases
4: so my knowledge of forensic science comes from watching many hours of scandinavian detective shows <laughs> <Me too. laughs> on net on netflix and uh, amazon so but i've never in in my years of watching have never seen questioned when the forensics guy says, these bullets came from the same gun. Nobody, <laughs> and nobody says, are you sure? Are you certain? And you've introduced uncertainty this whole, to this whole process that I think in some place I, you know, I think you've called it, it's a subjective science often. so It's
1: an art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. It's not even a science, you know, nobody measures anything, so... The way this works is the firearms examiner gets uh, let's suppose that there's some bullets recovered from a crime scene and then they have a suspect and they have the gun that belongs to the suspect. They get a couple of or three or four test shots from that gun. And then essentially they do this visual comparison. Mm. So they put these samples under what's called a comparison microscope, which is just an optical microscope with two lenses. They fix one of those samples and then they rotate the other one until they find striations that cut across the two samples. And there's nothing, um, you know, there are no thresholds. So it's not like uh, somebody needs to find 17 uh, matching striations before they declare a match. There's no such thing. And the conclusions are categorical. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. is a match. This is not a match. Or it's inconclusive
2: Mm -hmm, mm.
1: and there is no room for plus or minus Mm -hmm, you know what I'm talking about and so um, so you ask a firearms examiner how many mistakes have you made in your career and they will look you in the eye and say zero (laughs) Mm. and you you look at them and you go listen (laughs) (laughs) You've <laughs> <People> made mistakes. <laughs> and they say, I have never made a mistake. I've never been challenged. Oh. And, you know, the fact that you've never made challenge doesn't mean you've never been wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so these, con- you know, this, the conversation started from such a far away place from science that moving into science is a slow process. Oh.
3: So I got to I got to ask a follow up to that. You know, the the the, you see lots of evidence that's portrayed that's forensic evidence. What's what's the type of evidence and the quick conclusions that are drawn on these shows that Richard mentions that drives you completely crazy?
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, the the (laughs) the fingerprints uh, that they sit in the computer and and. Two seconds later, there's a match. (laughs) That is so crazy. This business of, uh, they look into a couple of test tubes and they say, oh yeah, you know, just by looking at this reaction, I can tell you this is the substance. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's such fantasy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing happens like that. And the one thing that really drives you crazy, or at least me, in these shows is that they're always, you know, they never, ever, ever consider consider the probability of a random match. Um. So uh, in this shows, if it matches, it means the guy did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in real life, two things can match and still have a different source. And yeah. so you certainly can find, you know, the simplest of all cases is, you can have some biological sample from the crime scene and, or some blood from the crime scene, and it turns out to be type O, and then your suspect is also type O. So in CSI, they would say this is the killer.
2: Right. Mm. In
1: real life, 45% of the population have type O blood. hmm so, you know, there's a very high chance that somebody other than the killer, other than the suspect, left that blood at the, at the crime scene. This probability of a coincidental match or of a random match is never even mentioned. And so, and until recently, I gotta tell you, was never mentioned in court either.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: You, you describe there's sort of two components when thinking about evidence and the value of such evidence. And you know, one one was the idea of probative value, was a description that I that you used. You know how you know just sort of making sure that that this evidence actually does provide you with kind of an insight into whether or not a person was guilty or it's associated with a particular individual. Can you talk about kind of the, the types of evidence that's that that you obtain from these this forensic investigation?
1: Oh gosh, there's you know there's all types of evidence. So the, uh, there's of course biological evidence of all types. There's what we call pattern evidence, and pattern evidence would be things such as shoe prints or fingerprints or the striations on a bullet or handwriting or blood spatter. So when somebody gets killed, there's all these blood spatters and uh, bite marks. Um, Then there's trace evidence. For example, uh, the chemical composition in duct tape or in Mm -hmm. glass. Gun residue, I mean, there's any number of different types of evidence, and some of it is more what we call probative than others. So we know, for example, that DNA is highly probative Mm.
2: because
1: the probability of observing two people with identical DNA is infinitesimally small. Uh, But we know that blood type, like I mentioned, is not probative Uh -uh. because unless you have an extraordinarily uh, unique blood type, There's a lot of people walking out there that have the same blood type that any of us have. Um, And the issue is that for most other evidence, we don't know what the probative value is. So in the case of fingerprints, everybody more or less assumes, but there hasn't been anything proven, that everybody has a unique fingerprint. But even if that's true, um, the, the fact that, you know, in a crime scene, you don't find pristine fingerprints. Mm-hmm. You find this much partial prints sometimes one on top of another one. And so the question is, if I have this very, very noisy image of a fingerprint, can I still say with certainty that this particular individual left that fingerprint that I am observing with so much noise? And the truth is, you can't. Um, There's been any number of individuals that have been wrongfully convicted on account of faulty fingerprint evidence, not because the fingerprint is unique or not, but because you simply cannot observe perfect evidence at the crime scene.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking forensics and statistics with Alicia Karakiri. Alicia, so this is a fairly new area. How did you become a forensic statistician, if that is a title that you can use? <laughs>
1: uh, by happenstance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many years ago, uh,
1: boy, 20 years ago by now. Um, two colleagues of mine, Hal Stern, who is, two former colleagues of mine, Hal Stern, who is now in University of California, Davis, and Mike Daniels, who is now at the University of Florida, uh, we were approached by by the FBI uh, to see whether we were interested in looking at some data that they had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we were approached by the FBI is that At Iowa State, there is a federally funded lab called the Ames Lab, and they had money from the FBI. And so um, the question at the time was about bullet lead. So when you have bullets, you know, bullets are made out of lead, and the lead is really an alloy that has all these trace elements, like uh, silver and bismuth and all kinds of other things. And at the time, the FBI was using this as evidence in court. So they would find a bullet at the crime scene. They would find a suspect. The suspect had unspent bullets, let's say, in a box. And then they would analyze the lead and compare the lead from the unspent bullets to the lead in the crime scene bullets. And if they found those chemical compositions to be what they called indistinguishable, they would conclude that the bullets that were used in the crime were originally part of the box that the suspect had at home. And so they wanted us to come up with some sort of probability uh, of a coincidental match. Are we correct in saying this? And the hope was that we would confirm Mm -hmm. that. But it turns out that we found that there was an enormously high probability that bullets with identical composition would be in different boxes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which makes perfectly good sense because when you have one batch of lead in a, manuf- in a bullet manufacturing plant, you know they produce three hundred thousand bullets from mm-hmm. one uh, what they call what is it called some one batch of of lead alloy. So you expect you know bullets come in boxes of fifty. You would expect to find many boxes with the same composition,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so we told them this this really doesn't have proactive value at all and um and that's how and so they didn't like that
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: surprise <laughs> that,
1: that was the end of our work yeah. <laughs> well, but it turns out that this led to um our report leaked and uh this led to a lot of challenges in court and this led to the National Academies establishing a panel to look at this, you know, a bullet led. And essentially the panel agreed with what we had said originally. So the practice was discontinued. Mm, wow. And so that was, pre- you know, that was a big impact, actually. That's cool. And so then we did, I did nothing else, have continued doing some uh, forensics in between until in 2014, there was a call for proposals to establish a center, a research center. Mm -hmm. And Steven Feinberg, uh, who of course passed away in 2016, gave me a call and said, hey, what do you think we put in for this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I think you're crazy, but well, well, (laughs) I'm game. (laughs) And famous last words, we got the, Uh, funding and established the center in 2015.
4: I'm I'm imagining, you know, you mentioned being approached by the FBI that, and maybe this has already happened, that you're going to be approached by a lot of smart defense lawyers who are going to be looking for reasonable doubt, which you could introduce fairly easily, it seems, with (laughs) this evidence being so new. Has that happened, or do you Uh, anticipate that?
1: I get three or four calls a week. No, okay. three or
4: four calls a week oh yeah my gosh. it
1: happens a lot and the problem is i used to do a lot of pro bono uh, work typically for defense oh, although on one or two occasions i worked with the offense i the prosecution mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i cannot do that anymore right now because i am trying to work with the forensics community mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. And so the last thing I need to do is, you know, go to court and attack them. So.
3: Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So you need to be neutral at this point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have to. I have
3: to. So you, you mentioned the, the 2009 NRC report, National Research Council report, and, and there's a special issue of Significance Magazine that's going to come out and, and reflect on that. I, I'm curious, what, what has changed in the last 10 years?
1: Well, unfortunately, not a whole lot. Um, what has changed? I think what's slowly starting to change is, like I mentioned, the conversation, and there is a there is a good chunk of the forensics community that is interested in moving forward and doing things uh, in a more scientific way, if you will, and I think they're starting to get excited about the fact that, yeah, the we are not. Out there, trying to show that everything they've done is wrong. We're out there trying to develop better ways to do their assessments, and so that has changed. Um, the legal community has become a whole lot more aware
2: mm-hmm.
1: of these issues. So, um, so there's uh, there's uh, there there are initiatives now to get lawyers. And judges a little bit more versed in this type of mm-hmm. question science and statistics and so on. Which is kind of funny because every lawyer you talk to, they say, I became a lawyer because I hate math. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> I hate to tell you, but <laughs> yeah. so so there's you know, but in terms of practice, there hasn't been a whole lot of changes, unfortunately.
4: Oh my. How how have uh, how have journalists covered your work? And that's one question. And a second part: If uh, what can journalists do better? I mean, they have to report on these cases all the time. They have to report on the, the science that you're you're involved with. Um, You've got two journalists at this table, and we're we're kind of interested in helping our students do a better job of telling stories that are complicated. And this is certainly a complicated story that has a lot of uncertainty to it. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a a few journalists out there uh, that have been doing, uh, that have been beating this drum for a long time. There's this gentleman in the Washington Post called uh, Bilko, I think his last name is. And mm-hmm. he has been talking about forensic stories for a long time. But it it doesn't receive the... I don't think it receives the attention it should receive. Mm-hmm. Um, the There's big stories out there. The Innocence Project, whom I'm sure everybody mm-hmm. has heard about, you know, has... Uh, identified almost, no, let's see, well, over 350 individuals that have spent 20, 30 years in jail for crimes they didn't commit that and who were convicted on the basis of junk science, mm-hmm. you know, junk evidence. And um, these stories need to be told. There's a, there's a real and horrific... Human cost when you have somebody incarcerated when they're 20 and they come out when they are 57, you know, for things they didn't do.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story, I think, that we don't tell very well, in particular to the kids that are doing science and technology, is that uh, applications such as these, you know, like forensics, Tremendously important from a social point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we can change the way uh, justice is administered, um, yeah. and and I think that would be so for, tempting for young people to get into a field like this, because you can really start changing the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So if someone, if a student wants to get into this world, you know, they want to become a you know a, a, someone who does the analysis of forensic evidence. What, what's kind of the path that you recommend for them to get involved? What kind of skills should right. they have?
1: So um, if, this kid, if somebody wants to work in a crime lab, uh, then, of course, the skill would have to be science, but with some statistics. You cannot avoid the statistics. <laughs> 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 or at least, you know, some data science, something or another. You have to be able to think quantitatively. Um, so that's one, uh, one recommendation, if you want to do research in this area, so be an academic that's working in this area, then, uh, you know, things such as, uh, you know, studying chemistry, studying statistics, studying computer science, the sciences in general are going to be the ones that are going to take you down this path, I think. And there's, like I said earlier, there's a wide variety of different types of evidence Um, and so there's room for all types of science.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories, Alicia. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alicia. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at our website, statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.